Well, thanks for, uh, for coming to, to the talk. And, and as Ken said, uh, this is kind of part two of, of the talk at the Severe Weather Symposium. The first one was what we were going to do. And so this second one is fortunately what we did do. Um, as I may have alluded to in my first talk, there was some uncertainty. I'll talk a little bit about why the, this, the, there, there was uncertainty. Uh, not with res respect to Vortex 2. Vortex 2 was a given. But the unmanned aircraft component uh, was kind of not necessarily a foregone conclusion. Um, so uh, let me start off by, by acknowledging some folks. Uh, this was very much a collaborative effort on the Vortex 2 project as a whole. As Tim had mentioned, there were hundreds of people involved, a uh, number of principal investigators, a number of volunteers. But in terms of the unmanned aircraft project, it was also a collaborative effort. I'm not an engineer. Uh, I'm a, an atmospheric scientist. And so I have a plane here, but I don't know, I didn't, don't know the ins and outs of the aerodynamics, the, the aerospace engineering that had to go into the development of this aircraft. For that, I leaned on my collaborators at the University of Colorado, particularly the Research and Engineering Center for Unmanned Vehicles. Uh, Brian Argro and Dr. Eric Frew um, were the two other principal investigators in, in Vortex 2 and involved in this project. We also had a number of volunteers. Some of these are grad students, uh, some of these are undergrads, some of them are here uh, from the University of Nebraska. I'm not going to go through all the, the names, but these are all the people that were instrumental in making the, the project happen. And maybe this is dead now. There we go. Okay, so a little bit about Vortex 2. I'm not going to go into great detail because Tim did a, a fantastic job giving an overview of the project. But let me hit on a couple of key um, features. This is the, the Armada. And this is all of the, the radars, all of the stick nets, all of the observations, uh, observation instruments that were, were used. And I want to classify these into uh, basically three categories. The first category are the radars. Uh, as to mention, there were a number of them, and, and they all kind of look the same. They're all trucks with radars on the back, but uh, as Tim alluded to, they have different functions. Uh, some of them are designed to get up really close to the tornado and sample the very low levels of the tornado uh, and the um, incipient airflow associated with the tornado. Some of them are designed to step back a little ways from the storm and get a bigger picture. And of course, when we say bigger, um, we're talking about storm scale, 10, 20 kilometer scale. Um, and so like these, these larger radars typically are the ones that step back. They're a little less nimble. If they get in a bad situation, it's a little harder for them to, to get out quickly. The smaller radars are, are better designed for that. Um, they're also um, what I call in situ surface instruments. And it's just a, a fancy name for saying they are ground-based. And so all of these instruments are collecting observations at the ground. And so to mention the the uh, tornado in situ pods, there are two out on the down. The stick nets, the distrometers, the mobile mesonets. The commonality is that they're measuring directly the observation, uh, directly temperature, moisture, winds, and they're measuring it at the surface. There's another category of, of observation of instruments, and those are the upper level in situ observations. It's still in situ, that means it's a direct observation, so there's a, a basically a thermometer and barometer on all these instruments, but these are designed to capture observations above the ground. And it's uh, a piece of the puzzle that to some extent has been missing. We had some upper level observations in the first vortex. Uh, we certainly had Raywinson's. As a matter of fact, this is the component that I was involved in in vortex one. Um, but they, as I will talk to, um, I'll talk to this point later, this is limited. Uh, we need more than just 
observations collected by balloons, I'm going to make the argument that unmanned aircraft were um, a, a missing piece, or the data they collect are a missing piece in Vortex 1 and instrumental to Vortex 2. Okay, so it's important to talk a little bit about, um, Deb, can you jump up there and click on animation? I'm not sure I can do that on this. I think there's probably, well, I'll start talking and then if it comes up, it'll, there we go. So um, we can talk a little bit about what, what we do and don't know, because I mean, ultimately the Vortex 2 is a scientific project and the first part of a scientific project is um, casting an observation, um, creating a question, not running, eh, it's not that big a deal. Um, and so we need to, by doing that, we need to, uh, cleanly put a wrapper on what we do and don't know. So what we do know is that most tornadoes, and certainly all, nearly all strong tornadoes, come from a type of thunderstorm called a supercell. And most of you, many of you may be familiar with them, but we spend a little bit of time talking about what these are. Uh, a supercell is, is just like any other thunderstorm, except it possesses a vortex that is on the scale of the storm itself. And this is distinct from the tornado. So when I say the storm, the scale of the storm itself, the entire cumulonimbus cloud, the entire updraft, if you will, is rotating. And you can kind of get a sense of this rotation in both of these stills. Uh, the animation would show it a little better. I actually have another animation that shows it as well. You get a sense for this rotation and the, the striations and this kind of um, smooth appearance. And some of the animations you probably have seen in the video sessions and some of the animations that Tim showed also illustrate this. Supercells have a, a kind of a unique appearance on radar. Uh, Tim talked about this hook echo. Well, here's a very good example. This is from 2009, uh, Vortex 2, 2009. A very good example from the Dow data of a hook echo. Um, so you can see this in a lot of different radar images uh, of, of supercells. But it's also important to know kind of where the cloud and precipitation, um, how, how, they, how they're spatially related. This is all precipitation. Um, I mean, almost entirely precipitation. This doesn't show us where the cloud is. So if I drop the, where the cloud is relative to the precipitation, when we see this hook echo, really the cloud, the cumulonimbus cloud, is um, just on the east side, kind of in that, nested in that notch. And this is actually, over here, a picture taken at the same time of this radar image. This is the cumulonimbus cloud. The precipitation is kind of on the back side. And I'll come back to that, that picture because when we make decisions on how to target the storm with the unmanned aircraft, this is what we're seeing. This picture, basically out in the field, and this radar image. And so that's how we do our, our targeting. One of the other interesting characteristics about, sorry. <laughs> all right, there we go. Um, one of the other things we know about, tor about tornadoes is that Almost all tornadoes uh, occur coincident with the formation of this phenomenon called the rear flank downdraft. The rear flank downdraft, um, meteorologists aren't very creative, it's a downdraft on the rear flank of the storm. Um, and it, so if we were to put the rear flank downdraft in the context of the radar image, and I'm gonna t I'll talk a little bit about the, the um, animation there, this is the rear flank downdraft. It is a surge of air that is moving downward on the backside of the storm. And when it, a mass of air hits the ground, uh, the downward moving air hits the ground, it spreads out. And so the rear flank downdraft isn't just this column of descending air, it's also manifesting as air spreading out at the surface. 
And so we don't have to necessarily get up into this downward moving air to sample the rear flank downdraft. All we really need to do is just to get into the air that is spreading once it hits the ground. Now, you can kind of see this rear flank downdraft in this animation on the back side of the, if there's a laser pointer on this, there we go, on the back side of the storm. So this is looking from behind a storm. You get a sense for this downward moving air on the back side of the supercell. You can also get a sense for the rotation that I talked about uh, that is definitive characteristic of supercells. So this is the rear flank downdraft, the descending air, and as it hits the ground, it spreads out and diverges as if kind of like if you poured molasses onto the ground, it hits the ground and spreads out as it, uh, as it expands. Okay, so the big conundrum is, um, while we know that tornadoes do come from supercells and they are coincident with the formation of RFDs, rear flank downdraft, not all supercells with RFDs produce tornadoes. And so what we need to answer is what RFD, rear flank downdraft characteristics, are important for tornadoes. And the only way really to get that information is to get into this RFD and co collect observations not just at the surface, but aloft as well. There are other questions that Vortex 2 intended to, to answer. Um, what causes weak versus violent tornadoes? Um, in, in an example of a, a quote-unquote weak tornado, it's doing damage. So the people who are being affected by this tornado may not say it's weak, but there's a difference between this tornado and say the Bodle South Dakota tornado that was rated as EF4. What's the difference between short track tornadoes and long track tornadoes? This is a, an, anima, a, 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 an image from the May 3rd, 1999 event in central Oklahoma, and clearly there are examples of very long track tornadoes. This is the Moore tornado and short track tornadoes. So what's the difference? What, what characteristics of the storm um, made one tornado last a long time and another last only a short period of time? And lastly, one of the, uh, uh, kind of an obvious question, I suppose, but um, one that, that has a, a deceptively difficult answer, what causes the damage? I mean, we know it's the wind, of course it's the wind, but what characteristic of the wind? Is it wind speed? Is it um, how much acceleration there is? Is it how much time a particular structure is exposed to wind? These are questions that we really don't have good answers for. And so what we, do in what we did in Vortex 2 is bring all this instrumentation, all these new toys, some old toys, but bring them all to bear on the same storm simultaneously to capture the behavior and the structure of storms from these different perspectives, surface, upper level, remote, that is, from radars. And this is an example of the uh, June 5th um, Wyoming storm. This is the, the uh, Goshen County storm. And these are actually all the positions of all the instruments positioned around the storm. There we go. Um, so Vortex 2 2009, I'm not going to go into great detail here because I want to get to the unmanned aircraft component, but I think it's worth giving some perspective. As Tim mentioned, 2009 was kind of a thin year for tornadoes, uh, good for the people of the Great Plains, not so good for a project that um, invests $13 million to study them. Um, but we did get a few tornadoes, and we also got, uh, um, what Tim mentioned, uh, an important data point, that is, storms that didn't produce tornadoes. Just as important is it to, it's just as important to sample storms that produce tornadoes as it is to sample storms that don't. We have to draw, be able to draw a distinction. If we sampled only storms that produce tornadoes, we basically have one member, one end member in the distribution, the storms that produce tornadoes. But what about the storms that don't? What, how do we draw a distinction? Um, so there, there were a few tornadoes in 2009, not many, 
total of four, and they were, interestingly, almost all on the margins of Tornado Alley. Um, one particularly good example was the Goshen County storm. Um, this is the, a picture of the, of the tornado. There was good, what we call dual Doppler data collected in the storm. Um, Tim referred to the triangula triangulation of, of Doppler radars. Basically, with triangulation, we get the full three-dimensional wind field, and we got really good data on the Goshen County storm um, using those dual Doppler analyses. Here's an example of the, the radar data that were collected. This is from Dow 5. It's a rapid scan Dow, data, Dow radar. Um, and to give you some context to what I mean by rapid scan, um, the typical 88D scan strategy on, during a storm is uh, you get data every about four to five minutes. So the, the 88D is the, the radar that's located at Valley, Nebraska, Hastings, uh, North Platte, the ones that are doing surveillance scanning the National Weather Service uses to issue warnings. So it collects data every about four to five minutes. That means every four to five minutes you get a new um, image, so to speak. The rapid scan is collecting data every seven seconds. So it is an incredibly high resolution in terms of time um, data source. And so you can get very pretty pictures, to be sure, but also a lot of great detail that can be used to examine what actually happens um, prior to tornado genesis, the formation of tornadoes, and then as the tornado uh, intensifies. Um, one of the interesting characteristics, I'm going to talk a little bit, not talk too much about this, but one of the interesting characteristics that we're seeing pop up, the more data that we collect, the more storms that we sample, are multiple rear flank gust fronts. Okay, so when this rear flank downdraft, that channel of air, hits the ground and spreads out, it creates a front. It creates a, essentially a small cold front, where on the west side, it's cool and moist, just like in a, a regular cold front. And on the east side, it's warm and moist. That's the air feeding the thunderstorm. So at the interface, we see these mini cold fronts. We call them rear flank gust fronts. And what we're seeing, that's not new, but what we're seeing is that there are multiple rear flank gust fronts in many supercells. And in fact, the primary rear flank gust front may not be what caused the tornado. It may be one of the secondary rear flank gust fronts. So this is a new thing that's shown up recently and is actually showing up in some of the data we collect with Vortex 2. And I'm going to come back to this because we actually saw this with the unmanned aircraft data as well. 2010 was much more successful. Um, there were m more tornadoes, and, and, and fortunately, the Vortex 2 was able to get on them. Um, I'm going to talk, uh, uh, Tim talked about the June 10th case. I'm actually going to talk about the June 10th case as well in Northeast Colorado. Okay, so unmanned aircraft systems. Now, unmanned aircraft systems go by many names. Um, I think the more conventional name that most people are familiar with is UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle. It's kind of fallen out of favor um, for no real particular reason. Um, but we generally call them unmanned aircraft systems. And, and there, is, there is some value in that change in the nomenclature because really the unmanned aircraft is only one part of the entire system. To actually operate the aircraft, you have to have a, a, a fair amount of instrumentation to communicate with the aircraft and to enable it to actually fly, not fall out of the, out of the sky. Um, and so it goes by multiple names. You may have heard them called drones or maybe in a remotely piloted vehicle. But unmanned aircraft system is, is kind of the, the terminology of, of, um, of current. Uh, unmanned aircraft, the actual aircraft itself, um, have many different sizes. Uh, many different functions. They range in size from the Global Hawk, which is basically the size of a commercial jet, all the way down to the Mosquito, which is um, this, you know, very small. 
Um, and each one of these has different functions. A global hawk can stay airborne for hours and hours and hours. The mosquito, we're talking maybe minutes, which may have value for the particular um, application. One of the problems with the larger aircraft, the global hawk or the predator, is that they are required to launch from an airport. Well, I don't need to tell you that uh, supercells don't always pass near an airport. Um, so it's much more versatile to be able to launch the aircraft very close to a supercell. You drive up close to the supercell, you launch it, and then do your deployment, land, and then redeploy. Um, so we're looking for an aircraft that's fairly small, one that can also be launched from uh, a field or a road. So why use unmanned aircraft? Well, the, they were generally in, in, uh, in, in the aerospace engineering parlance, we, they refer to the three Ds. That's why you use unmanned aircraft, is if it's dull, if it's dirty, or if it's dangerous. Well, in supercells, it's neither dull nor dirty, but it certainly can be dangerous. Uh, Tim showed this picture of Probe 1 right after the Goshen County event. Clearly, there's big hail, I don't need to tell you that. Lightning, tornadoes. So this is not, this is not a safe environment to be operating a manned aircraft. It's been done before, but sometimes there have been issues, um, not necessarily catastrophic accidents, but man, people who are operating manned aircraft are leery of, of flying into a storm. With an unmanned aircraft, we don't have to worry about that. There is no man that's, uh, or woman that's in the aircraft. Another reason we use unmanned aircraft is that, um, for one thing, it's above the ground. Remember, they had all these surface observations, which are very valuable, but we also need observations above the ground. Now, the, the balloons, um, offer a good piece of data, but unfortunately it's creating what we call serial ascent. The balloon launches, it goes straight up, it's collecting high resolution data, but not in space. It's creating a single profile of data. So we get great temperature, moisture, winds um, from these balloons, but it's just a serial ascent, a single one-dimensional profile. With an unmanned aircraft, and particularly with a flock of unmanned aircraft, you can craft what essentially is a pseudo two-dimensional profile. So you're flying aircraft back and forth, back and forth, and so we get data over a horizontal span and vertical span that we can use to create a much clearer picture of the phenomenon, be it a, a density current, a, an outflow boundary, or a rear flank gust front, or a hook echo. So our objectives for the unmanned aircraft system uh, um, unmanned aircraft component were primarily engineering because we'd never done this before. We had never, no one had ever flown unmanned aircraft in the vicinity of supercells to collect the data that we wanted to collect, to get into the rear flank downdraft. So we wanted to be able to establish that we could do it with a manageable risk. Not a zero risk, but a manageable risk. Now there were science objectives. We also wanted to actually collect temperature and moisture observations within the rear flank downdraft. So this wasn't purely engineering, though it was driven by engineering. There were science objectives as well. Now, no discussion of the unmanned aircraft system can be complete without a discussion of FAA because basically they tell us whether or not we can fly. All unmanned aircraft operations are regulated by the FAA. Um, they generally consider two categories. There are actually three, but the third is, is irrelevant right now two categories of aircraft. Model aircraft, which is probably what most people are familiar with. Those are the people who go out to the airfields with the little handset and fly the, the balsa wood aircraft or, or whatever aircraft it might be. And then there are public aircraft. 
So let me talk a little bit about uh, model aircraft. This is not what we were doing. We are not categorized as a model aircraft for reasons that are kind of nonsensical, quite honestly, but we're not. Um, model aircraft can only be used for recreation operations, and you cannot be compensated for any, in any reason uh, for, to operate model aircraft. So if you are flying as a model aircraft operator, you can't be paid to do it. Uh, moreover, you can't fly beyond visual line of sight of the operator. That is, you can't fly the aircraft where you can't see it. Um, you can't go above 400 feet, and no objects can be released from the aircraft as it's flying. We're not model aircraft operators, we're called public aircraft, which um, basically means that we are being funded by a public agency, National Science Foundation in this case. And our authorization is slightly different. We have to get a certificate of authorization to fly the aircraft. And the takeaway point for the COA is that each COA pertains to a particular aircraft in a particular geographical region. FAA doesn't give us a certificate and say, you can fly wherever and whenever you want. They say, you can fly that aircraft in this particular area. And what this means, and a couple more things, we have to fly below 1,000 feet, and we have to always be in visual contact with the aircraft, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the person who's controlling it. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But the, the upshot of this is that the, um, each region we have authorization can't exceed a particular area, a size area. So really what we have created to operate our aircraft is a patchwork quilt of COAs. Each one of these corresponds to a particular area that we have authorization to fly our aircraft. There are 59 separate um, areas. Now, if you look at this, you think, well, that, okay, that's kind of in Tornado Alley. I mean, Tornado Alley is generally in central Oklahoma, central Kansas, into central Nebraska. So we're kind of on the western side of it. This was our plan for 2009. Remember, the primary focus was an engineering-driven objective, that is, to show that we could do it. So we're going to do this in 2009, and in 2010, we're going to expand over the rest of Tornado Alley. Unfortunately, FAA never gave us authorization in 2009. So our 2009 plan became our 2010 plan. And it's interesting that the, they failed to give us authorization, not because there were safety issues. In the way FAA works, you pass a, fir a, a first hurdle, that is, they say, okay, that's a legitimate, safe way to operate the aircraft, and then it has to go through the bureaucracy. It spent, all of these applications spent about 30 days getting um, authorization, getting, passing that safety hurdle, and then it spent um, 12 months getting through the bureaucracy. So by 2010, we finally did get authorization in all these areas, but unfortunately, 2009, we were not able to get authorization. The second piece of the authorization, and I'm not going to hit on all these um, time, this whole timeline, but is the NOTAM. It's the Notice to Airmen. So simply getting the, the certificate of authorization tells us that we could theoretically fly in a particular area, but we can't then just go fly willy-nilly. We actually have to specifically notify air traffic control that we're about to fly, which makes sense. But it turned out that this was a more elaborate process that, than anyone had anticipated. Our original plan on May 1st was that we'd have 48-hour to 72-hour lead time, which is a long time when you're trying to forecast supercells, let alone tornadoes. But we could activate pretty much half of these COAs, 15 to 30 of these COAs. So basically a block of, of COAs could be activated, say about that size. So we have to know two days in advance that there will be a supercell in that area. That's pretty challenging. Um, it got worse though. At some point, uh, May 17th, they said, um, you can only have 24-hour lead times and you can activate three COAs. 
So that means one day in advance, we have to know that we're going to get a tornado in an area that size. Okay, so, yeah, it became ridiculous. I mean, not to mention the fact that if we could do that, we wouldn't need Vortex 2. Um, but things did improve, and to their credit, FAA, which you would think, I mean, it's a, it's a government bureaucracy, you would think it'd be pretty difficult to move. They actually, each one of these dates represented a change in their policy. So, to their credit, they were actually able to remain flexible. And by the end of the project, we were able to have a two-hour lead time and activate four COAs. That was actually workable, and, and fortunately allowed us the, uh, the ability to get some, some interesting data. Okay, let me talk a little bit about the aircraft. Well, obviously the aircraft is sitting right here. So um, it's a pretty much a fiberglass construction. The interior of the wings is also balsa wood, but most of this is fiberglass. And it's, it's light. I'm, I'm not a strong person. Um, so if I can lift this, anyone can lift it. Um, it's, it's a fairly light construction. You'll also notice that it has very long wings that are uh, fairly uh, narrow. Um, in other words, the aspect ratio of the length of the wing to the cord, which is the width of the wing, is very large. This is a glider. I mean, it, it's a glider configuration. It, it has a prop on it, and it has an engine. We don't just throw it and hope it, it, it glides through the storm. Um, but it is a glider configuration. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about the advantage of the glider configuration in a sec. You'll notice there no, there's no landing gear on it. It actually lands on its belly. It's a fortified belly, uh, just lands on a dirt road or a grassy surface. Um, so it makes landing very easy. There's not a, the, the, the attachment isn't on here, but there's actually a, a hook that's placed on the nose of this aircraft. And that's how we launch it. We take a, an elastic band, attach it to the nose, place this on a PVC ramp, and then release the elastic band and it shoots off into the air and the engine turns on. So it takes about from setup to launch, not including the GPS activation, which is, um, gives us the position, it takes about two minutes. Very quick, very rapid. Uh, another thing you'll notice, the, the wings, of the, rather the propeller does fold back. Uh, when this shuts off, when the, when the engine shuts off, these fold back, and so they don't get broken when, when it lands. Uh, there's something that's not on here, um, and I'll talk about it in a moment. There's something on here that's not on here that includes the uh, temperature and moisture uh, data. There's actually a rocket nose that is, that is supposed to be attached right here, and within it is the temperature and moisture um, sensor. And so it's, it's actually um, part of the aircraft. The engine, the battery, all the electronics are housed within the fuselage up front. Um, what else is there? So the, the typical speed of the aircraft is about uh, 20 meters per second, about 40 to 50 knots. Um, but it can get up to 40 meters per second. Um, we typically don't like doing that because we have to be full throttle and that burns a lot of energy. Um, but it can get that fast if it needs to. And the endurance is generally about an hour, though we generally go only about 45 minutes. Within this aircraft, I talked about the SON. This is that rocket nose that within it houses the temperature and moisture per, uh, um, sensors. Um, it takes a, a sample of uh, every takes two samples every second, so we have very high-resolution data. Uh, it actually has an autopilot. I mean, just like any commercial aircraft, this aircraft has an autopilot. Now, it doesn't mean the aircraft flies completely autonomously. It doesn't make its own decisions, but it basically doesn't have to be flown using a handset. That's how we operate this aircraft. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but um, it's, it's worth saying now that this flies semi-autonomously. 
Um, it also has onboard video, and I'll show, uh, show that video, uh, an example uh, towards the end. It's a system, it's not just the aircraft. To actually control the aircraft, we have to have some ground-based vehicles. The, the kind of the brains of the operation is the mobile ground control station, and two features that are, that are important are the two antennas that allow for communication to the aircraft. So as the aircraft flies beyond line of sight, because this ground station doesn't move, although it's a mobile ground station, it doesn't move once the aircraft is launched. The aircraft will fly 15, 20 miles from this, air, from this vehicle, and so people in this vehicle can't see it visually, but they can, with the antennas, have an exact reading of where the aircraft is and the data that are being collected. And it's through these two antennas. Uh, we have a scout vehicle, and as the name suggests, it's intended to scout out the roads ahead of where the aircraft is going to make sure the aircraft isn't going to fly into hail or other, um, other problems. And then the tracker vehicle. This tracker vehicle is instrumental to the operation of the aircraft. Remember that FAA requires that someone has to have visual on the aircraft at all times. Second of all, the easiest way to operate this aircraft is not to try to operate, navigate the aircraft as in go here and then tell everyone follow that aircraft. The easiest way that we determined was to actually use this electronic tethering approach. And what basically this does is the aircraft is instructed to follow a GPS location of a ground-based vehicle. So wherever the tracker, the ground-based vehicle, goes, the aircraft follows. Tracker turns left, aircraft turns left. Tracker turns right, aircraft turns right. And it makes my job as the meteorologist in command, in command simpler. All I have to say is tracker, go left, and the aircraft follows. I don't have to say tracker, go left, aircraft, go left, scout, you follow them. It becomes very complicated. So it's a simpler strategy for actually, my goodness, it's a simpler strategy for actually uh, controlling the aircraft. And so our plan for collecting scientific data and also demonstrating that we could do this is to fly into the rear flank downdraft. So remember, the rear flank downdraft is on the back side of the storm. It creates this rear flank gust front, that is the mini front that's created at the interface of this cooler air in the rear flank downdraft from the warm, moist air feeding the storm. And so our intent is to fly across this rear flank gust front multiple times as the storm moves towards us. And so essentially, if you're looking at it, if, we're, if you're sitting at, in, in position ready to deploy the aircraft, we're focusing on an area somewhere right in here. Now our intent is not to fly into the tornado. The tornado would be up here. So we're probably one to two miles from the tornado, which may seem close, but I mean, effectively, we're not being affected directly by the tornado if we're doing everything correctly. So we're flying basically south of where the tornado would be. We don't want to be in the tornado because really there's no information that we can collect in the tornado that is of any value. Second of all, if this aircraft made it in the tornado, it wouldn't make it out in, the same, in one piece. And we don't, it's a fairly expensive aircraft once everything's um, put into it. So, the, my goodness. <laughs> oh, no, there we go. Okay, 2010, um, as I said, 2009, we didn't have any deployments. Uh, because FAA didn't give us authorization. 2010, we did. In fact, we were able to get six deployments in the vicinity of supercells, um, and actually six uh, operations with, uh, four operations with the Armada. So there are certain times where the, where the Armada, the rest of the Vortex 2 group, was focused on storms that were outside of our area of authorization. But there were still storms in our area of authorization. So what we would do is we'd let the Armada go, and we'd just do our, our own thing. But our intent 
was to try to do as many operations with the Armada. The whole intent of Vortex 2 was to bring to bear all these different instruments on the same storm. And so we're very happy to say that we were actually able to do four flights with the Armada on supercells. We did a number of flights for testing, um, which informed exactly how we were going to do our, our operations, but the ones I'm going to focus on are the ones where we actually collected data near a, a supercell. So the June 10th event is, is, was probably our best event for unmanned aircraft operations. It was our best event because there were tornadoes. Unfortunately, they were fairly, uh, they were before um, we actually were flying, but there was a tornadic storm. And second of all, we were actually able to achieve our objective. We were able to get across the rear flank gust front and get into the RFD and collect in situ direct observations. So uh, Tim showed some, some similar pictures of the tornado. This is the storm and the tornado kind of on the north end of the updraft, a little closer image of that tornado. This is that second tornado that Tim referred to on the back side of the storm. Um, so you can kind of see that it's kind of sticking out the back of the, of the storm. This is the path that the aircraft flew um, during, this, during this flight. So uh, forget the numbers, but you mainly focus on the position. We flew up and basically loitered as the storm moved to our north, crossed the rear flank gust front. Remember, the rear flank downdraft is on the back side of the storm. In, uh, went into the rear flank downdraft and came back out. So what about the data? What data did we collect? I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but I want to show kind of what the data would look like, what we look at when we are trying to analyze these data to gain some insight into the structure of the storm. Now, this is basically temperature profile as a function of time. And you can see that there were a couple of significant drops in temperature. Well, this is the first rear flank gust front. Temperature was fairly constant. It passes through the rear flank gust front and into the rear flank downdraft. The temperature is cooler. And then some weird things start to happen. Temperature increases and then drops precipitously right after that. That is a second rear flank gust front. So I remember, remember I told you that there, that this one thing that's kind of popped out of recent analyses is that there are more than just, there is more than just one rear flank gust front. In fact, it may be the second rear flank gust front that may be the most important for generating tornadoes. And we passed through that. We passed through the first one. We passed through the second one. And so we have a fairly interesting data set here. There's another thing that happened on this flight. Um, I'll, I'll talk, actually talk about that in a second. This is the, a different perspective on the radar data. This is the UMass X-Pole data. This is one of the research radars that was out in the field um, during, during Vortex 2. You can see there's a lot more resolution, a lot more detail captured by this radar. Uh, the previous one was from the 88D near Denver. So you can see all these different structures within the reflectivity. Uh, that's all precipitation, but you can also see that where we were relative to the rear flank downdraft. Rear flank downdraft is on the back side. Oops, excuse me. That was my fault. On the back side of the, of the storm here. So this is the rear flank downdraft in here. Uh, this is the mobile mesonet that we had with us, the scout, and that was the aircraft. So one of the interesting things we saw with this deployment was a very violent updraft. That's an upward, uh, upward moving column of air not associated with the cumulonimbus cloud. I mean, the cumulonimbus cloud obviously is, has upward moving air. Anyone who's seen, watched the cumulonimbus cloud develop, you see lots of upward moving air. These turrets rising uh, manifested as cloud. But we saw something that was slightly different. And you can kind of get a sense for it here. This is the altitude of the aircraft um, as a function of time. And it's important to remember that this is flown semi-autonomously. So basically, while it's following the tracker, the ground-based vehicle, it is commanded to fly at a constant altitude. 
So any kind of change in altitude is basically moving the aircraft away from where it wants to be. So all these little blips here are, are basically taking the aircraft off of its projected track. And each time there's an upward motion, it comes back down. So it tries to always maintain a constant altitude. But you'll notice that here, it had a hard time doing it. This was uh, this about a 50 to th uh, 30 to 50 meter jump, about 150 feet jump, foot jump in the aircraft altitude. The aircraft doesn't want to do that. It wants to stay at a fixed altitude. Anything that takes it off of that commanded altitude means that there's some kind of wind field that it doesn't quite know how to deal with. That's a, an updraft. And you can actually see this in the, uh, the track that the aircraft took. So this is a little, this is probably um, 15 minutes into the flight, and you can see this jump that the aircraft took as it passes through what turned out to be the secondary rear flank gust front. So associated with this secondary rear flank gust front, we saw this very strong updraft. I'll let that run through one more time. And there's, I mean, obviously there's some other blips that it, that it went through. In fact, this second blip that it came, went through on the, on the return is actually this one just moved further south. So this violent rush of upward air may give us some insight into the, the structure of the storm that is important. And so while we're still looking at the data, there's still a, a lot more analysis that needs to be conducted. What we're thinking is that essentially as the aircraft passes through this surge of cold air associated with a second rear flank downdraft surge, that the upward motion associated with it displaced the aircraft off its projected track. We still need to do more analysis. This is very preliminary. But it does uh, suggest an interesting behavior uh, associated with these secondary gust front surges. So just in, in, in summary, uh, again, the, the, the focus here was to show that we could do it, uh, to, to prove that we could fly an aircraft to get the authorization, which obviously was a huge hurdle, to actually execute the flights that we intended to execute and collect data that are scientifically legit. And we were able to do all that. In fact, we were the first uh, ever to intercept a tornadic thunderstorm uh, by an with an unmade aircraft and penetrate into the rear flank downdraft. Um, so we were, were very satisfied that we were able to to do what we wanted to do, but now that we've shown that we want to do what we, we could do what we wanted to do, it's time to, to move forward and actually use these in a more regular uh, way in scientific experiments. So this is the group, again, it was very collaborative, uh, definitely a collaborative effort. Nebraska and CU were involved in this. And before I stop, I want to show you um, it's a, col a collection of videos taken from the ground as well as from the aircraft itself. Um, during the June 10th flight, it, all, it gives kind of a, a better illustration of um, the way we were conducting our operations. It also happens to be a very, a very large movie. So this is the June 10th event, Northeast Colorado.
That's the ground station, but the mobile ground control station. Oh yeah, it's it's a lot clearer to see you now. Yeah, you're starting to see the shadows on it. not supposed to do that violent tilt right after it takes, takes off. That scared the heck out of all of us. Okay, so right now it's probably about a thousand feet. It's doing these kind of S curves, but it's following the tracker. So even though it's taking these turns, it's actually right above the tracker. The tracker's moving slow, and so to maintain its position above the aircraft, it does these S turns. Obviously, that's the supercell back in here. Even though it's making these S turns, you'll notice there's not a whole lot of, of vibration. It's a very stable aircraft. downward motion associated with the rear flank downdraft. So we're waiting for the RFD to cross the road so we can get into the backside of it. This is within the mobile ground control station. You can see some of the, the technology we're using to maintain situational awareness, uh, positions of all the ground-based vehicles, um, the radar, uh, the location of the aircraft itself, the data that were actually being collected by the aircraft. actually from within the tracker looking through the panoramic sunroof that uh, was in the roof of the tracker. That's the tracker vehicle. There's a panoramic sunroof on top so that you can look through the roof and see the aircraft. And right before launch, they shut off the engine. The engine just shut off, just gliding. And unfortunately, it didn't hit that mailbox. We make a joke that if there's one object in the field that can be hit by the aircraft, it usually is hit by the aircraft. That's it. Thank you. It's on, it's on. Thank you very much, Adam. When the plane's engine is turned off, are you still controlling it at oh all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, and it's, it, it, I'll, I'll say one quick thing about the, the aircraft that makes it this particular aircraft a great design. I mentioned it was a glider. There were times during the deployments where the engine would intentionally shut off. The autopilot would actually shut off the engine because it didn't need to actually expend energy to fly. It would essentially kind of nose down into, an, into the wind and just glide. And there were times where it would glide for minutes. The engine would be shut off, and it'd be doing exactly. It'd be, we'd have full control over it, but it would just be gliding, which is great if we're trying to get endurance out of this aircraft. Uh, we want to try to have the longest flight possible, and if it can shut off the engine and essentially act as a little wind turbine, it's extracting energy from the wind, just like the, you know, the windmills do. Um, it's it's uh, being uh, efficient. 
If you have questions, we can bring the microphone to you. Yes, ma'am. Um, the actual temperature, moisture, pressure, and wind. Now, the, the wind is actually derived by calculating the velocity of the aircraft compared to, in, in the airstream, compared to the velocity based on the ground. So if the wind is taking it, causing it to, to crab, you know, to kind of move, it, we know that the wind is, is going in that direction. And so we decompose, the, the autopilot actually does, it decomposes the actual wind velocity from comparing the air velocity to the ground velocity. Yeah, not this spring. Um, I need to catch up on my sleep still. Uh, but <laughs> we actually, we just put in a proposal um, to NSF to do a project involving unmanned aircraft. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's not on storms, it's not on supercells and tornadoes. We need to see what answers we can get out of Vortex 2 before we start trying to propose new questions, or you know, answer new questions. And as Tim mentioned, there are, still, there are questions that are starting to pop up already that we don't know that we're gonna be able to answer with the Vortex 2 data. And one of the reasons is we don't have that many cases where we're able to fly the aircraft. We have a few and we're very proud that we're able to do that, but what we wanna be able to do is get more cases where we have more data in the RFD above the ground. And when we start building this um, statistically significant sample of data, then we can start making conclusions. But we need to be able to fly into the, the storms more often. The next, the next project is more about uh, really trying to understand how best to fly this aircraft and extract energy from the wind. And it's, it's, a, great, it's a great challenge. I mean, for anyone who, uh, I mean, again, I'm not an engineer, but I mean, it just, it's, it's a fascinating idea. Well, it, it, one thing I thought I heard you say that didn't make sense is as the plane flew through the secondary rear front gust front, I'm not yep, saying it right. correctly, and there was a, this sharp rise in altitude, I thought I heard you say that it really didn't have anything to do with what was going on inside the cloud. And so I was a little confused by that. At yeah, point, what would be causing it then? Um, or how would you discuss possible Yeah, yeah, hypotheses? no, that, that's a good question. Um, so if, if you imagine, so the, when the rear flank downdraft hits the ground, it spreads out, okay? So if, uh, uh, use the, uh, you can use the analogy of, um, um, like if you poured honey on a surface, it would spread out. And if you looked at a cross-section of that, oozing mass, which in this case is cold air, if you did a cross-section, it would have kind of a, a, a rounded appearance. And so you have this mass of air moving with this kind of rounded shape to it. Well, at the leading edge of that rounded shape, and well, I've got the, but at the leading edge of that rounded shape, there is upward moving air, because essentially the warm air ahead of it can't penetrate into it, it's forced to rise over it. And when it forces to be, is being forced to rise, essentially anything in that airstream is gonna rise with it. And what was surprising is the violence of that updraft. I mean, theoretically it's not impossible to get updrafts in the order of 15, 50 meters per second um, at the leading edge, but to actually see that was, was pretty interesting. Looks like uh, you appear to have learned quite a lot about the structure of that thunderstorm and all. What do you think other thunderstorms are like? Are there would there be a variance, or do you think they'd all fit similar pattern? A storm of that type. Uh, it's a it's a very good question, and one of the reasons that we need to to have m to collect more data with this aircraft um, to be able to make statements on how that storm fits into the population of storms. 
we need to collect a bigger sample. We need to have a sample that's representative of that population. And you're right, I mean, one, one case, you don't really know if that's, I mean, do we, do we see these kinds of the violent updrafts on secondary gust fronts often? We don't know. Do we even see secondary gust fronts often? Um, and more importantly, in storms that are favorable for tornadoes, do you see that? So it, it, it's a great question, and it's, it's fortunate that's what we're going to use to try to do more, more research. Thank you very much, Adam. And let's thank, let's thank him again.